Before we begin the MWA podcast, I'd like to do a little uh, shout out to the Texas Woodworking Festival. That's being held April 6, 2019 in Austin, Texas. Both Diami and I will be there, and for more information, please visit texaswoodworkingfestival.com. There'll be a number of great local Texas area makers, as well as uh, exhibitors there. Um, those include uh, folks like Philip Morley, uh, Leslie Webb, and uh, exhibitors like uh, Texas Heritage Woodworks, Lee Nielsen, and Dowd Toolworks, probably the uh, premier vintage uh, supplier of tools in the uh, Texas area. So, for um, like I said, for more information, please visit uh, TexasWoodworkingFestival.com. Tickets are only $15, and that ensures you a access to uh, all the activities, as well as a raffle ticket and an open bar. Again, TexasWoodworkingFestival.com. Look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to the Modern Woodworkers Association, a podcast about woodworking from folk who woodwork. Woodworking is what we do, who we are, and what we like to talk about. So join us as we have a drink, sit around, and talk woodworking. Hi, and welcome to the 238th episode of the Modern Woodworkers Association podcast. I'm Kyle Barton of Waterfront Windsors, and I'm here with my co-host, Diami Plotke of the Penultimate Woodshop. Hi, Diami. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing uh, I'm doing all right, Kyle. I was doing fine until we had some audio issues, as uh, you're all too aware of. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We'll get those figured out. Yeah. Uh, we're testing a new system for uh, that we're going to be unveiling at... Uh, the woodworking festival here in a couple of weeks now. Well, less than two. a couple of weeks. It's uh, two, two and a week and a half as we record something yeah. like that, right? A week and a half. So uh, I think uh, folks have have uh, heard us talk about it. Last episode, we had Austin Waldo on. Uh, he he was uh, talking about you know all the events and goings on there. So it's going to uh, be hope- crazy busy. I can't believe they're jamming all that into a day. I know, I know. I, I talked to him offline about that and he said well we're going to see how it goes you know it <laughs> may go it, it could develop uh, involved into something else hell it evolved into to uh to what it is now so right. uh, from just a basically just a meetup so um we'll see we'll see but yeah definitely looking forward to being out there yeah I, i'm looking forward to uh to attending yeah so anything uh piqued your interest out there um I'll tell you, it doesn't really have much to do with woodworking per se, but it was interesting to read uh, Chris Schwartz's take on the bankruptcy filing of F&W Media. Mm-hmm. And then I also read Bob Lang's take on it. And Oh, I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's on his Read, Watch, Do blog. Okay. And um, I, I don't – I take a more traditionalist view on business and capital and – Leveraging debt. I know Chris is very conservative about that and talks often, mm-hmm. not often per se, but does talk about how he doesn't like debt and the way he runs his business and more power to him because he's successful at it. So I don't mean to take anything away from it. Mm-hmm. But um, so I viewed his opinion of the bankruptcy with a grain of salt, understanding where he comes from, having heard him talk about business before. But I mm-hmm. have to say that at the end of the day, I think I agree with him that um, for the last, really since around the year 2000, the company's been run um, from a um, 
investment firm perspective and not for a true long-term business plan. And mm-hmm. it kind of just all caught up with them. Yeah. And looking at it, um, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, so to speak. But I remember uh, when I was a print subscriber, all of a sudden the, the magazine, I go, wow, it seemed to have gotten smaller mm. and lighter. <laughs> And, you know, and then you saw some of the advertising change. You know, I'll be honest. I haven't yeah. I haven't picked picked up a hard copy in mm-hmm. a couple of years. I, I couldn't tell you the last time I actually looked at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was a subscriber until probably, I don't know, I think my subscription ran out like six months ago. I, I signed up for one of those two-year ones or mm-hmm. whatever. And um, But, yeah, during that time period was, was probably, you know um, – I think when uh, Megan was still the editor, okay. you, you started to see it getting a you know a little lighter or a little smaller. And I think you know, are they trying to cut costs and stuff, stuff like that? And then you know, um, after she left, and um, you know, you started to see you know some of the advertising change. It wasn't strictly woodworking advertising. I remember there being like yeah. commemorative plates in it. Exactly. Um, exactly. I, I think the you last know. time I picked it up was probably when Megan was there. Yeah. Yeah, and I, that started to creep in, but you really saw it in the last, I don't know, year or okay. so. They, they were really, uh, you know, you started getting into all kinds of things, not just your commemorative plates, but um, I forgot exactly, but I just remember saying, "Hey, this isn't woodworking." So, but so I guess looking at it, you know, they were continually trying to cut costs and. Obviously, that didn't work for them. I don't know, you know, their other brands and how they were doing, but it doesn't look like they were doing much, much better. Who knows? Well, <laughs> Popular Woodwork, that, it might have been doing better than the rest of their brands. Yeah, in terms of the yeah. other F&W brands, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it is sad. But, yeah. Yeah, but, it's, um, the business is really not something worth too much discussion here, but... It's a it's a brand that used to be a be one of the leaders in the space and certainly had a tremendous mind share of the community and it's a shame to see that kind of go away. Though I think it's been a it's been a long road to here. I don't think this necessarily came as a surprise to people, at least people who were watching it for content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And yeah, it is it is sad, but you know, we'll see if somebody else is able to come in and fill the void. But, you know, right now you got what? Yeah, it's some um, Niche publications, but I guess wood and, um, and, fine, and woodworking. fine woodworking are the, your two premier magazines, I guess, as far as uh, readership. I know what Woodcraft has a magazine out, yeah, and then some other niche ones out I there. Yeah. Between wood and fine woodworking, I think, have plenty of room for each other because they're very different magazines oh yeah they're very um, different a different audience but i mean if you look at a you know when i use the word premium woodworking magazine i mean you know one that has a you know a large readership and following so yeah and all things yeah. being equal i'm pretty sure wood has the largest subscription base of any of them wood has a tremendous mm-hmm. tremendous following oh yeah i would i would i would imagine so yeah and, that, all that being said we need to have uh i think dave it's Dave. I think it's Dave Campbell is our editor. We need to have him on again. It's been years since we talked to him. Yeah, are they still doing that uh, weekend with Wood? Yes, they are. Okay. Okay, I never have been to one of those. I might, might need to one of these. Check the, one of these um, 
check the direct messages in the MWA Instagram account. Okay, I will. Okay. Um, yeah, so that that was uh, what really would caught my interest was that. And um, Chris had also recently a, a post about um, going to Jenny Alexander's memorial. Yeah, I was actually going to bring that up. I know we didn't put that in the show notes, but I read it uh, this afternoon, and that was – I mean – uh, Chris is a great writer, but he really knocked it out of the park on that one. I mean, very, I mean, you know, if the, the tribute that he gave, I, I thought was, was, was excellent. I mean, as far as, you know, really, um, kind of outlining, um, her, I guess, legacy and influence on the, on the woodworking community. Yes. And that, that yeah. was, that was good. I, I personally, I didn't think that it was written any differently than most of the stuff he writes, um, all the stuff he writes is good, so I don't mean mm-hmm. to take anything away from it. Um, but he closed with some a comment about – I'm going to paraphrase here, and I'm going to get the exact phrasing wrong, but something to the effect that he and Brendan took the last remains of her legacy from the property. Like It almost sounded like they stole something off, off, the, off the yard. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't know. That seemed – I think – I understand the. I think I understand the effect he was going for by not saying what they did, but if they just came from this memorial and they walked past her old house and were reflecting on the fact that she's gone from the neighborhood, and um, I don't know, it's, it struck me as almost a little disrespectful, and I don't think that's what he meant. So I don't think that he would be disrespectful. So I don't think it was a disrespectful act, but it it struck me that way. Like I just pulled it up. Um, uh-huh. Brendan and I then liberated one final memento, the last piece of pure J.A. that occupied Light Street, and headed back to our hotel, satisfied and happy we had known her. Did they steal something? I don't know. (laughs) Mm, Maybe the memento he's talking about is what is... Maybe it is not something physical, but maybe it's what he was talking about in the article about That's her influence on the case. them. And again, I, yeah. I, I've met Chris. I've read yeah. so much that he wrote. I don't think he did anything wrong. Oh, um, no. But no. I think that that kind of comment leaves you to question, well, what did they do? Yeah, and I, I, yeah, and I think that was going because if you read down in the comments, someone actually brought that up. And read the comments? Yeah. Yeah, I'll read the comments. Uh, I'm interested to see what some so somebody uh, commented. So what was the final liberated memento? And he replied, "Nope, sorry." So well, yeah, I, clearly he's not going to say. <laughs> so I, I think that's me. No, you're not getting the. I took it, and I could be wrong, but I took it to mean you're not getting the the gist of the article. So right, yeah, no, that, you know that could be. Yeah. So, but. But yeah, yeah, I, I'd actually, uh, I actually put that uh, in, in uh, I actually brought up that because, uh, yeah, I, I read that it, it kind of touched me, and uh, you know, because I thought it w- was touching, and from everybody that I've read that you know said their final, their said their words about Jenny uh, Alexander, they all said the same thing, and I'm kind of sad I never got to meet her. So yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. But, but speaking of Lost Art Press, um, oh, do tell because it's not typical that I will have two comments about Chris Schwartz. 
<laughs> well, uh, his other company, Crucible, uh, they just came out with a new card scraper. And um, I, I'm not sure how many of those these they had, but they had a ton of them, according to some of the posts I read. But they sold out of those in about two to three hours from what I read. And uh, it's like, hmm, <laughs> very interesting. Um, the scraper is kind of a unique curve shape that will work both for curved work and flat work. But it's based on a scraper Chris Williams had. And um, as you may remember I was at that class with Chris Williams and uh, and he was using that scraper and showing everyone about it. And it was great. And I think everyone in the class traced the outline of that scraper. And that's one of the first things I did when I got home was grind a scraper to that shape. And it is it is kind of a unique shape. Um, it's and I it's thought, a subtle convex curve. Yeah. And and, it, and you can use it on flat as well as curved works. Yeah, it's just a it's just a subtle curve, but it's the way that curve is because I've worked with a number of curved scrapers, and that curve just kind of works. Okay. Um, and I think uh, Chris Williams uh, got the basic shape of that scraper from John Brown. That's what he was using. So obviously, uh, it's been around for a while and worked well. And so I think he was going to say, "Hey, well, let's make a scraper like this." And I thought it was, um, you know, and he's gone into some detail. If you want to find out more information about the scraper, um, please visit Lost Art Press or Crucible. And there's a lot of information about the scraper and how it came to be. But um, and also some good tutorials in there about how to sharpen a scraper. But I thought it was also unique uh, um, that after they sold out is uh, Chris did post a, a PDF of that scraper. So oh, okay. you can print it out and grind your own scraper if you want to, <laughs> um, which is kind of neat. He did actually post that, um, boy, probably over a year ago. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then he posted it again. So it's just like, Hey, you know, if you want to make your own, here you go. So, and, um, I have, I think, um, um, I have taken a, um, a couple of scrapers and ground them to that shape, you know, different thicknesses okay. of scrapers. But, and it works well. I really like it. On flat, does it work better than a traditional square scraper? From from what I've read um, yeah, um, on Chris Hortz's, uh, Chris Hortz's blog, um, um, he says, yes, it does. Me, I have not used it in any flat work. It's always been curved work. Okay. So, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be the one, you know, I'd use it on chair seats and what, um, but I haven't used it on flat work that I can remember. No, I have not. So, (laughs) but, uh, I did think it's neat. So, you know, if you, if you weren't lucky enough to get one of the scrapers, I think they're only 20 bucks. So that's, that's what, uh, scrapers are going for. Um, yeah, that seems like the right price for a scraper. Yeah. Yeah, you can you can grind your own. So I don't know. I did get lucky a, 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 a few weeks ago and was able to get one of his lump hammers, which is really nice. And uh, I imagine I might pick one up, even though I've made my own just for uh, funds and uh, shits and giggles, as they say. So if it uh, wasn't expensive um, to ship, I would yeah. bring my lump hammer to uh, to Texas, and we could lump hammer it off because. I just it it look it it looks like an amazingly accurately and beautifully made lump hammer. 
mm-hmm. but it also looks like a lump hammer, and I just don't get it. Yeah, I mean it's 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 very nice. It's it's I mean the faces are very well uh, machined and curved, and um, yeah, it's nice. So, yeah, I got to I got to play around with the uh, prototype when I was at that Chris Williams uh, class, and I really liked it. I brought my own lump hammer with me, which I had, and it was definitely far superior. But mine was what just a little what two or two and a half pound. A uh, little sledge that you got at Home Depot or something, so it's wasn't anything special. Mm-hmm. But uh, this this is definitely uh, definitely nice, very nice, and uh, definitely well made. So uh, you know you're paying for that, but um, you know I like supporting what he does. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he's bringing some nice unique products. Yeah, I think he's bringing some unique products to the market. Um, you know, I really haven't. You know, he does have that. What is it? The the one inch hold fast that they make. It uh, fits in one inch holes, not your three quarter holes. And it's supposed to, and it holds like a Dickens. I was able to try that out too. Okay, but but I've I have never heard anyone complain that the three quarter inch ones don't hold like the Dickens. Um, I have the um, Gramercy ones. Mm-hmm, so do I. Yeah, and, and yeah, they work fine. But I find that I have to use two of them to hold a piece of wood. Or it will spin on me. And the one-inch one doesn't spin? No. Mm-mm. It really holds down. <laughs> that, that was that was one of the things I did when I was in the class. All right, let's just use one of these. And, yeah, I mean, if you slapped it against the side, it would spin a little bit. But it really cinches it down. So, yeah, I thought that was Is amazing. that worth putting, putting one-inch holes in your bench that don't work for anything else? Yeah, exactly. And that's really why I haven't done it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember what podcast yeah, I listened it's not to. That, it's not that big of a pain to put two on something, but it it is interesting that, yeah, there's a actually a lot of you know thought and effort went into the design of that tool. I think it was Justin yeah. De Palma on Against the Grain. But I, I, if I'm getting that wrong, I apologize. But mm-hmm. on a podcast, which was a few weeks old that I just listened to because I'm a few weeks behind in my podcasts, Mm-hmm. Um, they were talking about having just finished building an assembly bench and having routed dovetails throughout the top to use those. Um, oh, what's the name name of the company that makes the the clamps that fit in the dovetail slots? Craig? No, oh, no. Uh, the um, uh, oh yeah, I can see it now. I got so much. I got push sticks I have from them. I'm looking at. I yeah, they got the gripper. Um, Man, I can see the I can see the guys. Yeah, yeah. I can see the guy's son. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, So he routed dovetails in the top of his assembly table to use those micro jig clamps that lock in the dovetail, and said he was it was so easy to do. He figured even if it didn't work, it wasn't a big deal. Yeah. Um, but said he was amazed at how well it worked. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's a very different thing than a holdfast, but at the same time, it's really not a different thing. You know, it, it's accomplishing the oh, yeah. same goal. Uh, I thought that was an interesting take, and you could still drill holes all over it. Well, Philip Morley uses those in a lot of his work, too. He uses them in, in his of, Morley Mortiser, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm interested to things. put my hands on that when we get to Texas. Yeah, I, I hope he has it there. I'm sure he will or something because he sells those in, like, flat plaque packs or something like that. I think so. Members are searching right. Yeah. So hopefully I'll have those at the show. And I assume he would, but yeah, that would be good. Now what, you know, when they came out with that, that was kind of interesting. Do you have any of those, um, 
Festool clamps? No, and I I don't know that I would ever buy one. They look the yeah, here's ratcheting the thing is, ones. My opinion of the MFT is that it's a piece of garbage that no one should own. Um, oh, okay. I've never touched one that doesn't wiggle. It is the least sturdy table I've ever seen. Um, and I don't know if that's a result of the fact that the legs collapse, but yeah, whether whether that's why it is or not, I find it absolutely unacceptable. You need you need a, a table that doesn't wiggle, and I've I've never had my own. But everyone mm-hmm. I touch at a display or at a vendor show or anything like that, it wiggles like the Dickens, and I can't imagine why anyone would ever want to own one. Um, also, the three quarter inch MDF top. I don't know. Maybe with their clamps, it's okay, but it strikes me as not enough. But any, I, in terms of their clamps, no, I have not. But okay, something well, they don't excel at in terms of their tools mm-hmm. are the cam clamps. Like they have cam clamps on the domino. The weakest link of the domino is the cam clamp that holds mm-hmm. the fence. So, well, this is a clamp, and I'm not even sure that they they make it, uh, and it's just not branded. Uh, but it's it's. You know, it's it's a ratcheting clamp. In other words, mm-hmm. it's got a, a ratcheting mechanism that you yep. pull back on and it cinches it down. And and besides that, it looks very similar to the micro jig clamp. And um, I was but wondering if you could use that. But, but like I, have, that? I have two of them and they work fantastic. I love them. Do they fit in a dovetail? Uh, were they not designed they will, to fit in the track of the track fit, saw? Yeah, I don't know if they have an actual dovetail, but you could definitely... T- do a dovetail groove and capture them because that's basically how it captures into the MFT. I have. I've only, I've only had an MFT for a solid eight years, and yeah, it does wiggle, but it's never been a problem in any of the operations I've ever done, including cutting on it with the with the um, with the, uh, uh, the track, uh, track saw. saw. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it's never been an issue. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it does wiggle, but. Uh, like I said, it's just I, I think in use it's it's never wiggled and I'd say, Whoa, what's going on? Yeah, it's been rock solid. I know? have a kind of along that line, it's yeah. probably a very similar clamp. Is yeah. Festool makes clamps to clamp down the track of the track saw? hmm And they maybe these clamps you're talking about. It sounds like yeah, they're yeah, yeah. The they'll, they'll work for doing that too. Um, yeah. I have the ones that fit in the DeWalt track saw. They're from DeWalt. And mm-hmm. They are like. Do they a, have a ratcheting mechanism? No, they're a quick like lip style, style clamp. Um, just like an F style clamp, except it's got that hook on it. Yeah, and they are absolutely rock solid. I was very mm-hmm. impressed with them, and they slide right into the track yeah. perfectly. So I've never felt the need to try the Festool ones because the Dewalt ones fit in the same track and work yeah. wonderfully. Yeah, and I think both that style, the F style, you know, similar to the Micro Jig, which is kind of mm-hmm. an S style clamp that just has that dovetail hook on it um i think i think bessie makes some almost identical to that is and and um you know a lot of these i think a lot of that came from like uh, metal working yeah and the the micro jig is an f-style one with the little rotating lock the thing about the the waltz is they're a quick grip so they're like okay they're more like the uh like the quick grip clamps in terms of the the big handle that tightens and the, the trigger that loosens i think that's on my Forever wish list on Amazon, that particular clamp. I, like I don't it. know if you have wishes. Yeah, yeah. I know I, I have I, a shopping I, cart with like 150 items in it that are so related. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, I've heard I've heard good things. But I, you know, I think Festool also makes uh, the 
S-style clamp that fits in, that has a thing. And I've heard bad reviews about that, that one. I don't know. But anyway, um, moving right along. So, <laughs> Wait, wait, is uh, the there other, something about stools? Yeah, there's, uh, it's one of those things. Well, if you may remember when we had uh, Peter Galbert on the show uh, a few months ago, probably six months or so ago, um, I asked him about if he was ever going to come out with any plans of um, of some of his designs. You know, he did have one rocker in fine woodworking that I'd bought the plans for. And he said, yeah, he's starting to work on that. And I go, any chance it would be the stool? And he says, yes, it will be the stool. Well, guess what? Those plans are almost here. Almost. Um, almost. Uh, it should be shipping next week. I've already pre-ordered my set. Um, so, um, if you're interested, go to, uh, um, you can go to Galbert's website. Uh, uh, it's at, uh, petergalbert.com and go to the store and under books and plans, you can find it there. And, uh, he has an article coming out in, uh, popular woodworking, the next uh, popular woodworking, listen to me, <laughs> uh, fine woodworking, excuse me. Uh, but, uh, Peter does have an article in, Fine woodworking coming out about this stool. So, and it's my understanding he's also going to maybe put some YouTube videos out there and oh, uh, okay. after a while. So, should be interesting. And uh, I, I, I have not checked the list, so I might be talking on his turn here, but I believe, I assume, he'll be at Fine Woodworking Live. Yes, that was my next part. He will actually be building this stool during the uh, weekend. I'm sure that'll go quickly. Yes, yes. So, you, you know, there are a lot of great classes uh, that are going on there. A lot I want to attend. I would not be surprised if I just stay in Pete's class <laughs> all weekend <laughs> watching him build this. Because this stool is one of my favorite designs he has. I, uh, I think it's just fantastic. Uh, the first time I, um, uh, first time, well, the only time I took a class with Peter, but uh, it was my first Windsor class. And uh, we were sitting there in the shop working on these bloom uh, back Windsors, and he had that stool sitting there. And I was just, I just kept looking at it. It's absolutely amazing and very, very comfortable. So I'm glad he's finally come out with these plans, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, so getting this, those. Will this building take all the stools you've been prototyping and like throw them to the wayside? No, no, because this is a four-legged stool. Mine have all been three-legged, so uh. I, I don't think. But, you know, it's always interesting, you know, when you're prototyping things and then you finally see the plans to someone that's all actually been through the whole prototyping and actually refined the design over iterations and iterations and go, oh, that's what I'm missing. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm sure there'll be some aha moments uh, when I actually get those plans and compare them to mine. But, you know, it's 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 you know, I like the prototyping phase and it's it's all in good fun. And so. it's just that many more stools you've built. I could I could absolutely appreciate the value of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're all having fun in the shop. So uh, I, I do like prototyping and, uh, you know, building things and some of them don't work out. Plain and simple, but uh, you do learn from it, Absolutely. and and uh, you also learn to say, "Hey, how can I fix this?" <laughs> <laughs> so, but with that said, so what's in the shop? Well, um, 
the the top slab for the entertainment center is actually back in the shop. I dragged it up out of the basement last, uh, last mm-hmm. Sunday. I've not yet started to put a new coat of finish on it yet because I arguably could have started last night, but it wouldn't have been dry enough to lay the computer on today. So, um, <laughs> so it's serving again as my desk. Um, it still probably needs, I'm going to guess, somewhere in the ballpark of six coats um, to make the top glass smooth. It's still got these little pockets in it. Um, right. But, but they is, have continually gotten shallower and shallower. Exactly, so. exactly. And uh, I'm putting on, I think I've mentioned this, but I usually use a 50-50 blend of uh, Minwax Poly and um, Mineral Spirits. Mm-hmm. And in this case, I cut it like 80-20 Minwax Poly to Mineral Spirits, and I'm actually brushing it on, which I haven't done in forever. Um, so I'm, it's building up pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I'm all done, I'll sand it smooth and I'll wipe on one more coat just to make it perfect. So are you happy with the brushing? Is it laying out? It's been laying out fine. I mean, I yeah. while I don't brush much, I will say that I have a reasonably good brushing technique. Um, okay, I did. I've done plenty of brushing in the past, and you know, I bought a brand new brush, and it's a good quality brush. And at some point, the quality of the brush really does make a difference. Whereas with a rag, to a large degree, a rag's a rag's a rag. Um, mm. But if you're brushing the brush, the brush quality, I would argue, does really matter. Um, right. And it's you know it's a fifteen dollar brush. It's not a you know tremendous expense, but it's not one of the little three dollar brushes, um, right? And I think that helps. So uh, yeah, the brushing is coming out fine. I don't see any brush marks or anything like that in it, and it's it's padding on much faster. Um, so it's it's going well. It's just there's probably like I said about a half dozen coats left to do. And then it's time to install, right? No. Then. Then all the vertical components need to be sanded and painted. Oh, then it's oh. time to install. Then it's time to install. Yeah. yeah. So, so what are you painting those? They are going to get. Um, I know some listeners are going to like you know rip the headphones out of their ears when I say this, but I could not tell the difference between black milk paint and Benjamin Moore black latex enamel, um, flat flat latex. All right, enamel. I'm taking my earphones off so, right now. Yeah, they're just going to get, you know, interior house paint that's flat and black uh, painted on the sides. And they're, they're, uh, they're Baltic birch plywood. And mm. what they are is two layers of half-inch plywood laminated together to be a full inch thick. Mm-hmm. So their exposed edge where you can see the plies, that I'm going to do in red dye. And then the sides are going to get painted flat black. Okay. Yeah, I could see, you know, comparing milk paint and flat black. Yeah, I could see some. And I'm not like going with the milk paint. Sometimes yeah. like you wear through it and show the colors underneath it. It's none yeah, of that. Exactly. It's, just, it's yeah. just straight flat black. Right. Yeah, and that's fine too. And um, so, and I assume you're going to top coat those with the Minwax blend. No. No? No, It's that's the advantage of paint is you don't have to top coat it. Yeah, but it looks nice when you top coat it. it. No, 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 no. I want this to be flat. Okay, okay. Well, you could top coat it in flat. Why? Like, I, 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 little bit more I don't have enough experience with, with, uh, with milk paint to say you don't need to top coat it. But it always seemed like an extra step to me. Like you don't, you don't top coat paint. <laughs> I, I don't know. I've, I've always. I've always heard that, yeah, you don't need to top coat paint, but if you do, it it ends up in a, a nicer wearing, longer lasting finish. That's, okay. you know, your, your results may vary, but, you know, 
I can tell you, um, you know, what I'm working on is sorting out my house. And I can tell you there's a lot of cabinets uh, in my house that were um, just um, enamel paint, flat. Uh, oh, well, not flat, but uh, semi-gloss yeah. white enamel paint that I wish were top coated because they've had a, a lot of chips, especially ones in the uh, – in the uh, bathrooms, you could definitely see see a little water damage uh, towards the bottom of them. I mean, not water damage of the wood, but water damage of the paint where it made it chip and whatnot. So um, that's what I've been doing is sorting out my house. So, um, How is that going? It's almost done, believe it or not. It's taken a whole lot longer. I got uh, one last project to do is doing some touch up on ceilings, which means I'm standing on a uh, tall ladder and You're I should the have that. Man I know, I know, I know. And then my ceilings are pretty high. Uh, <laughs> this is a little tangential, but I'm not sure who's shorter. You or Sean. Uh, I got at least an inch on him. Do you? I, I, I believe that because uh, maybe, maybe two, maybe two. I don't, I'm not sure how tall Sean is. Uh, I'm, I'm right at five, nine. Yeah. We should, we should mention that Sean right now is enjoying the, uh, the sunshine state, and yeah. hopefully um, he's stalking Tom. I got That's some news about Sean in Florida when we get down to our fortnightly beer choices. Yes. So, but uh, but yeah, so the house is almost uh, completely sorted, and uh, after going through all this and deep consultation with my wife, we decided we're at least going to stay here a few more years. <laughs> so we're doing all this to put it on the market, and now we're like, you know, our house is actually pretty damn good. So, um, I think we're gonna I think we're gonna stay here for another couple of years at least. So, um, um, we'll see how that works out. But at least that means I can get back down to the shop as soon as I get this finished. In fact, I was uh, before we um, uh, start recording uh, this evening. I was down in the shop. Um, Reorganizing, I'd organize my shop, but after organizing my house, a lot of stuff got moved down into the shop. <laughs> you know how that works out. <laughs> so I just got that pretty much completed downstairs. So I'm hoping, if not tomorrow, the next day, I'm going to actually start a, a stool build, if you can believe it or not. Would it be yes, a Peter Galbert stool or – no, I don't have the plans yet. Um, it's the one I, I've, I kind of been uh, modifying my design, and uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and build it. Um, what's interesting is I have the leg blanks already cut, and I have the seat already done, and a uh, seat blank already done, and they've been just sitting there for, what, three months now? Okay. <laughs> Something like that. So, um, but uh, so I'll finally get those done. But so I'm hoping, you know, uh, by this weekend, I'll have the legs turned and uh, be carving the seat. OK. Yeah. So we'll, we'll you should bring that um, in in the back seat. I could maybe I could sit in it as we drive to Austin. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> well, hopefully I'm that far along. Uh, I should be. Where else I should, you have to I do? Your house is done. You said. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's uh, yeah. Hopefully, that would be. Uh, I want to. I'm going to put that as a goal to have that thing at least glued up by the time you come. All right. All right. So, with that, I guess we can get into our main topic. 
And I think uh, I think you want to talk a little bit about some carving you've been doing. Um, what I wanted to talk about was a um, a sin I've committed. <gasps> a sin. Yes. Um, and you've been working with hand tools. Oh God, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I don't. I don't particularly think taking a. a you know, a bird disc that's spinning at some god awful number of RPMs into a piece of perfectly good square wood is a sin. I think that's a delight. Um, if you start talking about carving, or at least the way I carve, um, mm-hmm. but for for the entire length of this podcast, and for the longer period of time I have lived in this current house, um, I, someone who has a a degree in English, have had no bookcases in my house. <gasps> That is uh, a sin. It is, but I'm I'm a stubborn English miner, mm-hmm. and um, I have. So you just have them stacked up, you know? Like I a, I have like a tower of books. In okay, so in my closet, <laughs> I'm a boy, so I don't have long dresses. So right. I have pants and shirts hanging on the pole in my closet, which leaves like two foot underneath them. Uh huh. Completely filled with mostly magazines, but some books and some records. Mm-hmm. Um, and then under the bed, I have piles and piles of books and I have books on the shelf above the pole in my closet and I have books up in my attic and we have books that we packed in boxes when we moved like 12 years ago and haven't unpacked yet. Um, and it's not for any distaste for books, but it's, I've always wanted to make my bookcases. Right. And clearly that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> um, so I am, for the most part, okay with living in some version of squalor until I get around to doing things the way I want to do them. Um, I have no problem if my house is half finished because I know what I want to do on it. And when I get to it, it'll be done the way I want. And if it's not done until then, that's fine. That's that's my take. Uh, my wife. Okay, I'm not always... gonna bl- I'm not gonna blow the line here, but does this have anything to do with what we we're talking before the show about? It does. Um, so my wife does not share that appreciation for, well, someday it'll be the exact way we want. So it's okay if it's not done now, uh, uh, attitude that I have, which also means that as a side note, in terms of my projects, probably before I finish the entertainment center, I'm going to be getting back to the fence that I didn't finish last fall. (laughs) Um, but earlier we were discussing, and I don't, you have to forgive me. I don't remember if we had started the podcast with this or not, but we were discussing that. I think this was in the pre-show. Mm-hmm. That IKEA has a a line of um, IKEA branded appliances. Yes, and yes. the reason I found myself at IKEA last Saturday was to buy some of their iconic Billy bookcases. Ooh, the Billy bookcase, not the Billy. Oh yeah, see, we, they're what? Are they still like twenty bucks? No, there's like sixty bucks. Sixty bucks. Oh. Yeah. Um, but still, you must have got the the super duper Billy bookcase. There, no, that's the standard one. It's the it's eleven inches deep. It's seventy one yeah. in, ish inches high, and it's I don't remember how wide it is. It's in the ballpark of thirty mm-hmm. inches wide, thirty one inches wide, something like that. Yeah. Um, and I would have gone for the stereotypical IKEA birch, but they were out of stock of the birch ones. <laughs> they got the white ones. <laughs> Um, and one of them went in, in one of my, one of them, I bought four, 
Um, four. I, honestly, I'd probably have to buy four more. Um, we have a lot of books. Yes. One of them went in my son's room, mm-hmm. and three of them are, are going. They're still unassembled, but three of them are going down in the basement, which is our you know, video game room. My wife's got a treadmill down there. The kids have all the toys down there. It's the kind of a playroom do-all room. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll go down there. And I'm thinking I need to convince her that one needs to go in our room. Because all things being equal, they are not a bookshelf that I've built. They are not yes. a power-carved bookshelf, as I still would love to wrap my head around how to mm-hmm. do that. And I've mentioned that on the show many times. Um, so they're not the ultimate bookcase. Mm-hmm. But they're relatively cheap. They're clean. They're unoffensive. For what they are, they're sturdy enough. Um, mm-hmm. It's not going to take years of abuse by a child. But for a bookcase, they're going to last a long time. I mean, quite frankly, we've had – we have – probably a dozen of them in my office that we keep product manuals and stuff in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just a bookcase. Like, they don't fall apart. So, yeah. you know, in an afternoon and for, you know, 250 bucks, I came home with four of them and I managed to put one together and I, I can't argue that it's a bad value. It's not the personally built and designed thing that as a as a woodworker mm-hmm. I want in my house. Right. But if I can move past that as a as a homeowner and a guy who lives in a house, there's a lot of value to a nice, clean, cheap bookcase that just holds the books. <laughs> like, um so it's got one job and it, and it does the job relatively well. Does. You know, that, uh-huh. our house is not set up in some, you know, crazy Victorian decor or anything. In the rooms that we've put them in they work fine. Um, yeah. Well, as long as we're confessing our sins, my house does have one Billy bookcase in it. You know why? Because it's a house. I think every house does. I know. I know. I know. It's in my wife's music room. Uh, and uh, she needed something to put our, all our music books in. And I think this is maybe when I first started woodworking or maybe even before I really started woodworking. And so, yep, down to Ikea and did it but hell it's held up all these years well, you know i yeah. it fits in this nice little tight flat pack box yeah and ours fits in a nice little section between two windows okay <laughs> well, as as i'm putting yeah. this thing together on uh, on saturday night mm-hmm. i'm thinking to myself i didn't do the calculations now you I, did use like a drill driver you didn't allen wrench them all did you um you don't need an allen wrench anymore uh, what? There's no Allen Mine? wrenches in it. It's There's... all you need is a flat screwdriver and a Phillips screwdriver, and the most you're turning something is like I don't know. Oh, so it's just got the those knockdown connectors. Yeah, it's there. just the knockdown connectors and the the huh. like the male one. You turn it like four rotations because it's such an aggressive thread. It's locked down. Like huh. I was all prepared. I have like Allen keys that you can chuck into a drill. I was all prepared yeah. to use my drill driver and like zip it together, and you yeah. didn't even need it. Like two screwdrivers, it. The the issue that I had assembling it was that because it's – I think it's about 71 inches long. It's a, a tall rather. It's about as tall as I am. My son's room literally had piles of books on the floor. It was hard to assemble it flat on the floor in his room and then tilt it up and <laughs> put it where it went. It fit perfectly where it had to go. Yeah. But it was just hard to clear that much floor space to assemble this thing because mm-hmm. um, there were piles of books everywhere. Um. So – as I said, I was as I was taking it out of the box, I was thinking to myself, 
as it if I copied the dimensions on it exactly, I might be able to fit it all into a sheet of plywood. But cer- mm-hmm. certainly, with very minimal modification, I could fit it into a single sheet. And if it yeah. really took a sheet and a half, who really cares? But this would be a very easy project to just make out of plywood. Yeah. And then I Did stopped. You, do you remember Mark? Um, I don't know if it's mm-hmm. – I think it was a guild project. It's a guild project. project. Absolutely. He has a one and two sheet two, two. bookcase. Yeah. And that – it's it's probably – that bookcase is probably as equally just a, a good solid bookcase. It's, it's I'm sure it is stronger than these are. Mm-hmm. But these are stronger than they need to be. So that extra strength, if it's going in the kid's room, you know, my this my son who I put it in, he's 14. Mm-hmm. I hope he's not going to be abusive to a bookcase. Like, yeah, he wears out his pants and things because he scuffs the knees yeah. and all those kinds of stuff. But I, I'm, um, I'm presuming that this bookcase will last him until he gets to college. Yeah. Um, but as a, if it doesn't, it's not that big a deal. Exactly. And when yeah. I st- really stopped thinking about it, I was like, well, now that I've got these four, I could just copy the dimensions. I could make a couple more. And I was like, but why? I can't mm-hmm. make, you know, to make one, it's going to take me a couple days. Yeah. And I got to put finish on it. I got to sand it. It, it. You know, I can cut it up and screw it together in a day. But by the time it gets sanded and gets finished and it's it's a couple day project and I can't build if I just buy reasonably good plywood, it's going to cost me more than buying it from Ikea. Mm-hmm. And mine will be stronger without a doubt. I could make it, you know, so you could drive tanks over it if I really wanted to. But the one from Ikea is strong enough. Like I, mm-hmm. the more I thought about it, the the more I was convinced that it didn't make any sense to build a bookcase. Someday I put a library in a house and I'm, you know, I'm just taking my time and I'm doing what I want and making the making the thing that I want to have, I'll go crazy and I'll spend, you know, hundreds of hours designing and building some stupid bookcase that will be delightful every time I see it. But mm-hmm. for right now, I don't know why I waited so long, honestly. Well, good. Well, good. I, you know. But I, I presume that I'm not the only person who gets oh, stuck no. in these things that, you know, you want to make it yourself so you go without. Mm-hmm. And... At some point, you got to just bite the bullet and do it. I Mark, probably 10 years ago, he came I, – I think it was a column for Pop Wood that he yeah. wrote. And it was like this flow chart of should you make it or buy it. Buy it. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I remember that article. I, I yeah. didn't pull it up, but that's what mm-hmm. I had in my head when I was buying these things and assembling them. And mm-hmm. now having them, I can't say it makes any sense to buy them. Mm-hmm. Or to make them, rather. Excuse me. It, it makes sense to buy them. I don't – I, I'm I'm a, I'm frustrated with myself for having waited this long, because yeah. they're a simple, functional piece of furniture that I should have had in my house years ago. Yeah, and I can see that unless you need something that you know has got to fit in a particular place. Absolutely, there's a there's a yeah. ton of reasons. Some of right. which are just you know pride and the time and the desire mm-hmm. to make your own. Um, yeah. But in the spaces of my house that they're going. Their rather generic, clean European styling is absolutely fine. It matches other, you know, cheap furniture in my son's room. And mm-hmm. it's going to, the ones in the basement are going to be on the opposite side of the room as this entertainment center. Mm-hmm. Um, and while they don't match the entertainment center in any real way, they don't clash with it either. They're just these unoffensive white boxes. So our, our playroom is far from this 
you know, formal room that has a particular aesthetic in terms of its furniture. If anything, I would hope that my entertainment center, when I'm all said and done with it, hopefully it's a fun piece of furniture, which is what mm-hmm. the room really is. So, um, yeah, I, I think well, they're going to work out fine. And I'm, yeah, like I said, I I'll probably t- buy more. Yeah, I can't tell you there. There is a cheaper way, but there's a lot more. It, it's yeah, it, you got to look at the labor involved too. Is I did make um, Chris Schwartz's anarchist design book bookcase, mm-hmm. and um, and I did it out of you know Home Center uh, Southern Yellow Pine that I bought. But of course, I had to resaw it, uh, join it, plane it. Um, do all of that, a uh, couple of, uh, uh, I think it, yeah, it did require glue-ups, you know, to make some uh, wider panels. And, um, but it's probably in my, I want to say maybe I spent 30 bucks in wood, mm-hmm. but probably took me a week to build. And see, that's yeah. the issue, because as I stop and yeah. think about the time, it was about, well, I could tell yeah. you what it was, it was... Now, this is back, you know, if I was working on it eight hours a day, I could probably build it in, say, three days. Um, but, well, yeah. With tax, the four bookcases cost me 260 bucks, And in somewhere in the ballpark of seven hours, I was able to drive to Ikea, buy them, drive home, and assemble them all. Now, I'm extrapolating mm-hmm. a little bit because I have not assembled three of them yet. But mm-hmm. based on the time it, I know it took me to get them and put one together – I'm thinking it's about seven hours total to have gone, gotten them, came home through a nasty, crowded Ikea on a Saturday afternoon. Ooh, um, yeah, it's the worst time to go. It was, but it was like we once we made the decision that this is what we're going to do, it was like, let me just go and do it and get it over with. Um, and you could get some meatballs when you're there. Well, it was too crowded to do that. Like, I'm there with my son, <laughs> and ultimately I just wanted to go home. <laughs> like, I didn't, but... Um, I've we've actually the, the particular IKEA on Long Island we've done work on when they put an extension on we did the roof work so I've been there when they're closed I've been there at like odd hours when you know at ten o'clock in the morning when there there's no one there and in those mm-hmm. cases you grab some meatballs it's no problem at all um, but at like two o'clock on a Saturday you don't want to go there for food no um, no but yeah like. And you don't want to even get close to the place, say, mid-July through August when, you know, you got all the college kids no. moving out. Oh, no, man, the place is just a disaster. But, you know, as, I, as we're talking about this, I have more time into applying finish to the top section of this entertainment <laughs> center that I'm not done with, that I still have yeah. half a dozen coats left to go. So did you cruise by and look at entertainment centers? <laughs> <laughs> no one makes them 12 foot long. Yeah, that's true. And, and now that I've got a year and a half invested in this thing, I got to finish it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, yeah. So that yeah, was the, that was my the woodworking sin that I'm really not ashamed of. It took, yeah, it took a little while to get over in my own head, but I, the more I think about it, the more I realize I made the right decision. Yeah, there you definitely you know make versus buy and. Um, Exactly. Getting something up. I mean, if you got books all over your house, like you said, you had to buy four, even though you need eight. But with those four, you probably can clear out enough floor space to build the other four, right? Well, (laughs) yeah, I suppose I could. But you know what it is, is now I've got kind of got the momentum. So Uh I will probably not assemble the other three until after I get back from Texas Mm because 
because um, the schedule we have this weekend. Though Saturday afternoon, I might assemble some. But regardless, once these get filled, I'm going to go out and buy more. Like once we're starting the pattern of taking the books out of the closet and putting them on a shelf, that's where they're all going. <laughs> and I'm not going to stop <laughs> until we're done. Well, good. Uh, well, yeah. So, I'm sure there's a lot of IKEA owners out there in the woodworking community. Yeah, and it is what it is. Some some of the stuff is. is not bad. Some of the stuff is terrible. Some of it's actually good. And again, mm-hmm. for a bookcase, they're functional and inoffensive and dirt cheap. Why not? Exactly, exactly. And I think I was telling you in the pre-show when we were talking about uh, a little bit about IKEA, as I do have uh, a couple of their chairs. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the little bent uh, wood plywood chairs that kind of rock. Um, I think they're actually an evolution of a um, Wagner, mm. you know, that type of um, design chair. But yeah, I've had them for years and years and years, and they they're, work well and they're comfy. They're neat chairs. <laughs> yeah, they are. I, I was tempted to buy one when we were there with my son. Like every time I go, my wife doesn't like them. So I, yeah, every time I go with her. There's no chance. But when I was I was just there with my son buying these bookcases, it was like maybe we could take one of these home. But um, we spent our budget on bookcases. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I don't know what they want for those chairs anymore. But they're about a hundred bucks. Yeah, can, yeah, depends on the type of fabric. But they were like anywhere from like eighty to a hundred. No, well, I have the leather. I got two. Oh, leather see, ones. I didn't see a leather one. So the leather ones might be more expensive than that. I presume they are because the ones yeah. I was looking at were all fabric. And yeah, yeah. I haven't seen them in years, so I assume that's still the same. But when I was done, you bought the um, you bought the frame and then you could either buy the cushions and they could either be fabric or leather. I'm not sure okay. if that's still the way that works or not. But uh, anyway, yeah, yeah, I got I got two of the the leather ones and they're comfy. And I've had them for golly, at least 15 years. And uh, we're holding up. Um, I think, like I like I told you in our pre-show, I do need to uh, refinish them. But um, you know, that's after fifteen years. So yeah, there's nothing to complain about there. Yeah. What I think you should do is, um, I think you should uh, dye them once you've stripped them bare. I, actually, I do need to dye them to match the furniture. Because uh, guessing your furniture is not a not a vibrant color, though. No, my furniture is like mahogany, and these things are like maple. <laughs> <laughs> They're from my team. They're birch. Birch. Yeah, exactly. They're clear birch plywood. So, yeah, um, yeah, I do need to strip them down and then see if I can uh, some way dye the birch. Probably can't, and it's probably going to be one of those things where maybe I can paint it mm-hmm. and then top coat it. Oh, and speaking of that, um, I think our other topic was going to be finishing disasters. Yeah. Now, do you mind if I start with this? Because sure, I don't sure. have Go ahead. a finishing disaster, but I have a lot of finishing eh, Recom- that turned out okay. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't. I don't have a. I have some that were complete disasters, but I have also finishing recoveries. Okay, so like. Yeah. A couple weeks ago in late mid in mid February I made those two frames for my wife and my sister in law. And they're dyed shellac 
with a top coat of rattle can lacquer. And mm-hmm. they're about, I think they're four coats of dyed shellac. And I don't know what I did, but maybe I sweated onto them, but I got like these rings. Like it looked like some, like a, like a, a water drop that hit the finish and made a ring in it. And I got these rings in the finish and I kind of sanded them back and then put another coat of the dye on and then put my clear finish. Mm-hmm. And I'm really not happy with them. Like I, I took the nicer of the two and gave it to my wife because I did not have time to redo it. And the one for my sister-in-law is sitting behind me and I don't think I have the time to do it, but I, I would like to just strip it down and restart over because I'm not happy with the way both of them had these like ring marks in it. I don't know what I did because they weren't in the earlier coats of dye. They were only on the very last coat of dye. Mm-hmm. Both of them. So I don't, I don't know what I dropped into it. I think I dropped something on it, but it um, they did not come out as nice as I wanted because you can kind of see the grain through the dye. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's this monolithic color. So to the uninitiated, they're not that visible. And I've I've been smart enough not to tell anyone. But mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not happy with the way they came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that I could think of that was not a – it did not go as nicely as I could think of was my first place hardwood derby car from Fine Woodworking Live two years ago. And um, uh, the one that had lead buried in it? No, the one that was made completely legally, following the <laughs> rules, only made with resin infused wood. Um, I do not cheat like most of the fine woodworking staff. Uh, I happen to know from a very reliable source that at least two, if not all, of the fine woodworking staff cars cheated. Uh, but that being said, mm hmm. That was a piece of resin-infused timber strand that I attempted to French polish. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. I remember that. (laughs) And when it was all said and done, it looks fine. It did not look French polished. Uh And we we were interviewing um, Alf Sharp Mm -hmm. just prior to that event. And I specifically asked him questions about French polishing understanding that I was going to try to French polish this thing. And I don't get it. Like he recommends, he does his French polishing with an, a pound and a half cut of shellac. And wow. That, that is a little strong. I it? typically use a half pound cut. Yeah. And the pound and a half was like molasses. Uh-huh. And I understand talking to him that you need a little bit of resistance and you kind of burn through the resistance and that heat, the friction, yeah. and it all kind of works together. But it wasn't working for me. And I don't know if I just needed to keep doing it and power through it and I didn't put enough coats on because I know the French polishing can take, you know, dozens and dozens of coats. So maybe, maybe, maybe I just hadn't finished it and I was in the mid process and I gave up. Maybe it was because it was resin infused wood and that was screwing things up. Um, maybe I was doing the wrong technique. I don't know exactly what went wrong, but it was not the typical six to 12 coats of half pound cut shellac. I will do in a project that is shellac finished that mm-hmm. I normally rag on a t- in a typical manner. I thought look better than this French polish following his technique. And clearly the man knows how to French polish. His stuff is beautiful. So I don't mean to blame Alf, but it just was not, 
was not coming out the right way. Um, mm-hmm. But that being said, you know, I talk about how his I found the pound and a half cut to be really thick. As I listen to other woodworking podcasts, I always hear people talk about using shellac at either somewhere between a one and a two pound cut. And yeah. I can't help but think that's so friggin' thick. Like, I use the half pound, and if I'm really feeling aggressive, I'll, I'll go up to a pound. I would never on my own use more than a pound cut of shellac because it binds too much, and it just doesn't work right. Like, the, the thinner shellac, yes, it, it requires more coats, but it's yeah. so much easier to use. It's a delight to use. Yeah, it'd be interesting. You know, the only person that I've really watched do the French polisher – attended a, a lecture on that was Patrick Edwards at I think one of the uh, woodworking in America's mm-hmm. I think he was there do you remember he, that I I'm sure I was at that event but I, I know I did not attend that lecture you know um, he yeah he does a lot of French policy and I believe he did a little uh, little thing on but I cannot remember what he used but I want to say it was a lot thinner cut than that i could be okay. wrong see i've actually yeah. attended alf sharp giving a lecture on french polishing at woodwork in america when we were in kansas city um and mm-hmm. then a ye- afterwards maybe a year or so afterwards i um we we interviewed him on the podcast and i specifically asked him again and if, i think i followed his technique as best well i know i followed his technique as best as i could i think i followed it pretty well and it I'm not sure I, if I knew what the problem was, I would have fixed it. I just I don't know what went wrong, but something something didn't come out right on that finish. Yeah, when you're talking French polish, I think there's a lot of skill involved. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm sure it's something that that uh, that 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 Al had had picked up and had, you know tried and experimented with over and over again and got to a. I guess a technique that he was happy with. And, yeah, and clearly he knows yeah. how to do it. I mean, yeah. his stuff is gorgeous. Yeah. So, um, but you said you've had some disasters and some that you're just not happy with. So, what's gone wrong in your finishing? Um, probably. Well, there's two. I have um, I have two that are, that are interesting. Um, one is before I got into woodworking, and another one is afterwards. Um, before I got into woodworking, uh, when I was actually building this house, uh, we have maple kitchen cabinets, and they came in, and uh, this was a, uh, a custom house, so to speak. I mean, and so I was able to say, "Hey, I want these maple cabinets." The uh, contractor built the maple cabinets. And then he had a uh, finisher come in and finish them. Well, the finisher was actually the painter, too. And I quickly found out that he didn't know anything about finishing because he came in with the airless and sprayed these with polyurethane. And goes, oh, yeah, this polyurethane came out real good. But, uh, you know, it would have been much better if we would have done lacquer. And I had knew nothing about finishing. Okay. I was like. Okay, well, how much would it cost for lacquer? Oh, it'd only be, you know, uh, oh, let me think. I could probably do it for $500. I could recoat these in lacquer. And I went, okay, I can do that. Well, he sprayed lacquer over polyurethane. Straight. So I, I found out, you know, I knew nothing about finishing, nothing about woodworking, mm-hmm. but I quickly found out that you cannot spray, spray lacquer over polyurethane. It, you know, it just melts the polyurethane. Yeah. <laughs> so 
I quickly kicked him out, and uh, my wife and I spent uh, about two weeks stripping all cabinets because, of course, my builder was saying, hey, it's not his responsibility, and I agree with him. It wasn't his responsibility because I'm the one that said, told the painter, hey, yeah, go ahead and do that. (laughs) So we ended up stripping all these cabinets, and then um, I had to find somebody else that would come in and uh, actually spray lacquer. That's where I found out about Sherwin-Williams Rub Effect Lacquer. (laughs) And uh, effects is that I've heard many things about their pre-cat though I've never used it. Yeah, it's a pre, it's a pre-cat rub okay. effect. That's what they I should say just pre-cat lacquer. But uh, yeah, that's where I found out about that. I quickly learned all about lacquer and uh, how to actually do that, and it was a really interesting experience. That I wouldn't recommend it. It basically prevented us from moving into our house for about a month. Wow. Yeah. By the time, you know, that was done, we stripped them, find another uh, contractor that can come in and, and do it. And, yeah, yeah, it was it was it was a complete disaster. But we did recover. Um, the second instance I have is more recent. And that was one of my uh, my last uh, state chair that I built is I was in a hurry to uh, to complete it, and get it done. And I went ahead and mixed. I was just going to paint them with black milk paint. Top coat and be done. And I was in a rush. And I did not give the milk paint long enough to settle. And um, it went on fine, looked fine, uh, rubbed out fine. But when I went to top coat it, all of a sudden I noticed I could really see some wood underneath. And uh, top coated again. I was using the the Osmo. It's one of my first experiments with Osmo, and you know I kept being able to you know see through the black and see the wood. I you know I wasn't doing a two tone effect or anything like that. I just wanted a straight black chair. And um, yeah, and I was like, okay, what do I do now? (laughs) Because I was not happy, and I basically ended up. Uh, letting the Osmo cure for about a week, uh, sanding everything down, um, which made a really interesting looking chair. I have pictures of that where it's sanded down. <laughs> and then I uh, top coated that with um, shellac just to, you know, you know, bury all that stuff and have a nice surface that something else can stick to. And then I went with that. Uh, I've talked about it on this podcast uh, before went with that um, uh, cabinet and trim paint, I believe it's called. Okay. Uh, and um, and uh, basically, it's supposed to be a real hard, hard uh, wearing paint. Okay. And I followed your instructions and did not top coat that paint just to <laughs> see how it would wear. And it's actually worn pretty well. It's 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 really good. Um, I think it would have been a little bit better if I would have top coated. But, you know, it's probably been in service a little over, probably maybe even two years now. And uh, it's it's worn really well. So, anyway, I think it's cabinet and trim paint. Um, I, let me look that up. Because I, I always have to do this because it's not something, it's not the most inexpensive uh paint but it seems to really hold up uh the only thing is it's a little 
Um, yeah, C2, C2 is the, uh, company C2paint.com mm-hmm. and, uh, it's her cabinet and trim paint and it really, really holds up well without, without being top coated. And, um, I'm really happy with it. The only thing I wasn't happy with it is it is a real thick paint. Most of the paints are. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. where you got to really watch your brush strokes and your, your painting. Exactly. Exactly. You were talking about the brush strokes of yeah. the. The and it, it flowed out. It flowed out well, but it's you know it was it was kind of a bear to put on at some some point, especially so, when you're doing it with spindles and things of that nature. But um, you know it's it's a low VOC paint too. I'm okay. not sure sure. Um, you know I think it's a water based. It's not a an it's not a oil based enamel. It's a, latex. It's a water. Yeah, yeah. But uh, they do say it comes with a porcelain hard finish. Okay. Um, as is I'm it, reading the website, and it really does. It's a really, really durable finish. There's a latex paint additive called Floatrol that is yes. designed to add when you're spraying latex paint, but it absolutely mm-hmm. works when you're brushing, and it'll help. It'll help just soften up a little bit, make the brushing a lot easier. You might require one extra coat, but um, mm-hmm. it does a very nice job of making the paint flow a lot better and eliminating brush strokes, especially some of the VOC or low or no VOC paints they tend to flash off very quickly and right. you can easily get brush strokes on them because it doesn't have time to kind of settle before it dries and mm-hmm. this will help with that no question well that that's excellent yeah yeah i have heard about adding flow troll to a to uh to paint i didn't do it in this case but you know i should probably have i got like half a can of that stuff left <laughs> but uh yeah it's it's uh, I, i'd recommend that if you're looking at Hey, you're looking at painting? Hey, I'd look into that. Let me ask you a question about the finishing, Kyle, because when I stopped and thought about this topic, um, again, I don't have anything that I've classified as a disaster. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, just things that I've been a little unhappy with. But at the same time, I tend to not go out on too big a limb in terms of my finishing. Probably the biggest limb I went on was the first time I applied a colored dye to something. But... It still seems very straightforward to me. Like you just add some dye to shellac and you brush it on. And I was very familiar with shellac already. Mm-hmm. So it, it wasn't rocket science. Um, yep. And I tend to, I think like most people, stay to the two or three finishes that I know will come out okay at least. Um, mm-hmm. And like I have a, I have an HVLP gun that I've had for probably five years plus and still not used. Um, some of it is just that in my shop, spraying is an issue. Mm-hmm. You either mask things off or go outside or whatever. But yeah. you know, that's, at some point, that's also an excuse. Like I've just mm-hmm. not taken the time to go through the learning curve of mm-hmm. doing it. So I say all that to say, you know, with finishing, I think like sharpening, there's a million ways to do it. And to be successful, you stick with what you know. But you don't do that. You have no. used like every new finish that has come out <laughs> over the last three or four years. Like I've never used one of these. What are they like? Um, catalyzed waxes, or I forget what the term is. Oh, like the, the Osmo the, and yeah, the Rubio. The Osmo, yeah, the old wax finish. Yeah, like which I don't think it's oil or wax. I think it's got wax in it. But yeah, there's some there's some interesting chemistry involved there. Yeah, like I, I hear about that chemistry and I go, eh, why would I want to try that? But I know you, they're they're popular, and I know yeah. you have tried all of them. So, no, I haven't. I haven't 
tried Rubio. Okay. And I'm, re- well, I'm really interesting, interested to try Rubio um, due to a number of things that um, I can't mention it on over the air, so to speak. Not not anything bad, but people saying saying, yeah, um, this this is good for this, this is good for that. I haven't tried it, so I don't want to mention it. Okay. But um, I'm real interested to try Rubio. Um, I have done Osmo, and it's definitely had a learning curve. Um, and I have not tried all of the Osmo products, and they have changed since I first got into Osmo. Really? But I will. But I will say that. Well, I don't know if they've changed. It's just more available in our market than okay. was before. And like they have a top oil that when I first got into Osmo, um, I don't know if it wasn't available. It certainly wasn't promoted um, as it is now. I haven't used their top oil, which is supposed to be a little bit harder top finish um, from my understanding. I've used their standard um, finish. But at that point, when I started, you could only really get it in what they called a satin matte, which was really matte. It wasn't satin. And you could get it in gloss and the kind of the formula that uh, some people came up with and I I followed was to do two coats of the matte followed by one coat of the uh, gloss. I think Peter Galbert actually came up with that formula. And then some people, and I think including Pete, actually started then mixing those two. And it's my understanding now they actually have a satin finish on the market. Okay. uh, At least – Available here in the U.S. And who knows? might have been available in Europe for years. But uh, I haven't tried that yet. And that goes, that goes. you know, the reason I mention that is because, yeah, I just bought, I forgot what it was, a quarter of this stuff. It lasts a long time. A little bit goes a long way. So that's one of the things I liked about it. It's not cheap. I mean, it's like 40 bucks for a quart or 50 bucks for a quart. But, you know, it can last you a long time. I think that's a little on the high yeah. side, but all these expenses, yeah. all these finishes are expensive. None, none yeah. of them are cheap. Yeah, exactly. But um, like I said, it lasts project after project after project because you really don't need that much of it. Um, one of the things that I really liked about the Osmo is I found you didn't need to sand between coats, which was always, mm. you know, I could apply Armasil, and I use that for years as my go-to finish. And, you know, that's the one thing I hated about it is, you know, you're constantly apply a coat, sand it back, apply another coat, sand it back, apply another coat, sand it back. Um, actually, the first two coats, so I didn't sand between. But after the second coat, you sanded back every coat and it just you know took forever and then you had to clean up all your parts in this shop area that you sanded in before you applied the finish again and with using uh osmo you didn't have to do that and that was a great time saver and can mm -hmm. i share another finish you don't have to sand between coats with sure shellac that is true that is true well after the first two coats you will get a little grain raising if you're going with a half pound cut Mm-hmm. I've done twelve pounds, twelve coats of a half pound cut in a day with no sanding between them. Okay. And at the end, I'll wipe it over with a, a four aught um, synthetic steel wool. Mm-hmm. You, you did not need to sand between coats with that. Okay. Good point. Point taken. Um, but but still, and anything that eliminates sanding between coats is worth trying. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I've had real good luck with it. Now I know some people um, prefer still using um, 
you know, a lot of the uh, the folks that I've seen use use Osmo have been using it over milk paints, you know, and chairs. And I heard one chair maker said, well, if I do a natural chair, I still might go back to oil rather than Osmo. But I know there are a lot of builders over there, especially building cabinets and stuff that are going, you know, going with Osmo over bare wood. And it seems to look good. Um, I know my technique of applying it is vastly different than other folks. Um, I've seen, you know, I've watched Mark on his channel apply it. I apply it totally a different way than he does but it may be because i'm mainly doing curved parts and uh and things but he tend, he tends to uh leave it on um i will you know when i apply it i'll apply it with a little the white scotch bright little abrasive pad uh-huh. and i'll apply that finish on and just um almost immediately after i have a section applied as i will wipe as much of it back as possible and then move on to the next section and do the same thing. Uh, I know Mark, who's primarily doing, you know, I guess flat work, is uh, leaving that on for a while and then wiping it back and then putting another coat within. I don't know. I was, I was, what was it, that table, that round table that he made for his brother-in-law? Mm-hmm. Did you watch that when he finished it? I, I believe not, I, I know the table, but I didn't watch yeah, the video. Yeah, I believe he put a coat of Osmo on, and then after a few minutes, wiped it back, and then like within two hours, put another coat, and then wiped it back, and then put that top oil on top of it. I haven't tried that, but it seemed to seem to be good results for him. Okay. Um, when I first started using Osmo. I left it on for a while and then wiped it off, and I found that you know it was really hard to wipe off, and it seemed to take forever for it to cure. Do you think but, the difference is the humidity levels? So I guess he's in Colorado, where it's not quite as dry as it was in Arizona. I think it's just as dry there as it is in Arizona. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, it's Colorado's dry, and I think his area. I think he's mentioned that a couple of times. It may be even drier in some respects. So that could that could play a part in it. Who knows? But. Um, but yeah, I've used a bunch of different finishes. You know, I, I, it's a shiny object to me. I'm always looking for something that, hey, will either. Uh, I don't know. I, I like experimenting with it. <laughs> with with that constant yeah. drawing out of the different types of finishes, have you ever had one just completely go south on you? Yeah, and I think that's the main thing. I think being able to recover from it. Um, you know, like I had that uh, finish on that chair. Okay, well, I send it back top coat it with uh, shellac and then move on from there. I've had that happen with a, uh, another experiment. Um, um, I have a, a Nakashima style sofa that I built for our front room. Okay. But before, before I did that, I was working off uh, just some basically uh, auction site photos <laughs> and importing those into SketchUp and kind of coming up with the design as I built a little settee to see if I could get all the angles right and all of that stuff. Okay. And so so once that was done, I really experimented. I heard about all these people doing these, you know, stuff with milk paint, you know, doing these top coats and, and uh, you know, sanding through and getting this rustic look. Well, I decided... Well, I wonder if I can try that with uh, general finishes, um, milk paint. I know it's acrylic and not the real milk paint, but I'll even spray it. 
<laughs> so, so I sprayed an undercoat of red and a top coat of black and, you know, got my sandpaper out and sanded it through. And it's an interesting finish, uh, interesting look, but it's not like, anybody else's Windsor chairs or stuff. It, it's it, it's kind of interesting. I call it my flame couch because it looks like it's on fire. Um, but uh, anyway, so I did that and then I said, okay, well, I want to try spraying uh, one of those water-based finishes. And I forgot who it was. It was, I think it was general finishes, but I forget which water base, if it was their standard one or the high performance. And I sprayed that on and it was probably my technique, but that was just awful finish. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, all kinds of orange peel on it. And, uh, so I sanded that back and, um, was able to, uh, uh, once I sent it back, it even further distressed the finish underneath, but, uh, not too bad. And then top coated that with, uh, shellac and then, uh, top coated that again with some armor seal. And it came out to be a real, relatively real smooth, uh, glass like finish. That's kind of nice, but, um, you know, I think that's part of the thing is being able to say, okay, I'm going to experiment, but I do have a recovery option here, or at least know that, hey, you can recover from it. And I think probably uh, my first experiments with uh, finish in this house, redoing those kitchen cabinets, uh, you know, kind of ingrained into me that no matter how bad it is, you can recover from it. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, if you go into, hey, I just built this nice house for myself, and the kitchen cabinets look like they're melting. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, if you know how to sand, yeah. you can refinish. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, but, yeah, I do like to try different finishes. It's just, uh, I don't know. It's Part of the hobby, I know a lot of people hate finishing, and I'm not sure I love finishing, but I do love to experiment in that area and okay. uh, see if I can come up with something. Hey, sometime you will. Yeah. But you know what? What? <laughs> Let's move into our beer choice. There you go. So tonight I am drinking the... Another beer from Car Carbach called the Daymaker, and I've seen a lot of these beers out there. These uh, Brute Rose IPAs. Have you seen those? I have not. What makes it a uh, Brute Rose IPA? I'm not really sure. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a sparkling to, I, Brute I think Rose IPA. To, but... uh, get into the rosé market of wine and uh, try to do something uh, that has a little hint of the. Um, I guess like a rosé uh, wine or rosé champagne. Oh. And um, I picked this up um, just because I figured my wife would like it. And which, and I didn't even realize it was an IPA till after I got it home. I didn't tell her that because she hates IPAs. And she actually really likes this. So it's brewed with cranberry and hibiscus. So um, it's an interesting beer. It's really nice. Now, I say that... Because Carbach is a Texas brewery, and I have talked about a number of their their brews, uh -huh. but um, Sean, since he's in Florida, actually uh, texted me uh, with a picture of some Carbach he found there in Florida. So uh, wow. he's actually enjoyed uh, some of the Hopadillo, and I think Love Street was the other oh, cool. 
uh, Carbach uh, beer he had. So, I, uh, I will admit that when I was in Florida last uh, few years ago, I, I took in a lot of Cigar City. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, now we get pretty decent distribution up up here. Mm-hmm. But last time I was down in Florida, uh, the Highlight had just come out in New York. So um, hmm. much of it was, was new to me. Yeah. But this uh, Daybreaker is uh, our day maker. I'm sorry. <laughs> day maker, not breaker. But this uh, day maker is it's a nice beer. And uh, I don't know. I have seen a lot of these brute rows. I don't know if they're all IPAs, but I have seen that in a, do- uh, in a bunch of different brands um, around here. But I haven't tried one till this one. So I'll hmm. have to keep my eye out for them because I, I have not yeah. seen them around here. I don't know if they're local to you or whatever. But um, And maybe a Texas thing. I don't know. I tend to look at mainly at Texas beer, so it could be that. So what are you drinking? Tonight I am partaking in one of the uh, February single-day releases from Six Point. Um, Resin is one of their – I think it's a double IPA. It might be a triple. Mm-hmm. It's an unfiltered double IPA, I believe. And it's, it's about nine – I think it's – I think it's nine one. Um, it's pretty high alcohol content, and it's a strong, sweet, dank IPA. It's a good heavy double IPA. It might, mm-hmm. it might even be triple. So anti resin is um, well, according to the the can, it's ripe as hell. Hmm. Um, and it's it's a it's another one in the line of IPAs that Six Point has done. Mm-hmm. have zero IBUs. Huh. Interesting. And I don't know what they have done to their process, but these days, the majority of the IPAs they release as single-day releases are zero IBUs. Huh. And this is a good, it's a smooth drinking IPA. This is also 9.1%, and I'm almost done with my second, and it's not, it's not tinny or metallic or dank at all. It's it's fairly smooth and a little sweet. Um, so I guess that makes it a lot a bit more drinkable to take those IBUs out. Mm-hmm. But there's something to be said for a proper high alcohol dank IPA with a ton of IBUs. So I I don't know I don't know where I fall on this. These are good, but um, I think they're a little tricky in that they don't really taste like what they say they are. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to our last podcast, Yami. I'm a couple weeks just, behind. I've edited it and not really listened to it. <laughs> I actually, uh, for uh, St. Patrick's Day, uh, uh, my wife and I went out with a couple of friends and uh, went to a bar that actually had some six-point on draft. Oh. Yes, here in Texas. A high-res IPA. Okay. Yep. So I had a couple of those. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. So, so we'll I have think to that, have the the uh, the high res and the anti res, and we'll get together. Exactly. When you put that up there, and went. Hmm. Wonder if that has any anything to do with the high res IPA. But I think it does have uh, IBUs in it. Yeah. The, the high res is an yeah. even stronger version of the regular resin. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I think the regular resin is a double, and the high res is a triple. I think. Yeah, it was um, pretty strong. Yeah. 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 But it was good. It was good. I enjoyed it. Yeah. They, so, some of this stuff is, is a little out there, but I will say they, they know what they're doing. They, they're they a decent brewery. Well, good. Well, good. 
Well, that said, uh, where can folks find you, Diami, on the interwebs? Well, um, I could be found at the Modern Woodworkers Association. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be found at Penultimate Woodshop on Instagram, Penultimate mm-hmm. Beer on Untapped, or you really want to see me rant, uh, Diami Plotky on Twitter. There you go. And, and you, Mr. Bar- Barton? Well, as always, you can find me at Barton.Kyle on Instagram. And with that, that just about wraps it up for this show. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play Music, or just search for the Modern Woodworkers Association, your favorite podcaster. Then you'll never miss any of our exciting episodes. And while you're there, please leave us a review. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, if you like the show, please go tell a friend. Word of mouth is the best way to share podcasts. You can also follow us on, uh, on Twitter at MWA underscore national, on Instagram at MWA underscore podcast. You could like the MWA on Facebook. Um, and if you're really feeling adventurous, you could go to modernwoodworkersassociation.com where I'm seriously considering writing another post. Um, so it, uh, it might be updated sooner than later. Um, but until then, Go out in your shop and take something you're not happy with, sand the finish off, and refinish it. Because what the hell? We all know how to sand. Or just go to Ikea and buy a bullied bookcase. (laughs) That might be the best plan of all. Hello, Modern Woodworkers Association podcast listeners. It's me, your second favorite woodworking podcast host, Ben Strano from Shop Talk Live, reminding you about Fine Woodworking Live April 26th through 28th at the Southbridge Hotel and Conference Center in Southbridge, Massachusetts. It's a fantastic show. I don't need to list the presenters because it's a who's who, but I do need to tell you, it's a great chance to buy Diami Plotkia beer. So head on over to findwoodworkinglive.com right now to register and get ready to hang out with Diami Plotki and buy him beer.